So I'm a big fan of food. I've enjoyed food from when I was little, little. So I grew up on a farm and a ranch in Eastern Oregon, right on the Idaho border. So we raised beef cattle for sale and my brothers and I raised pigs for 4-H and mom always had a, a big garden growing all sorts of different veggies. And we did a lot of canning and preserving. So I remember sometimes in the, in the summers is nearly everything on our table came from something that, that, we re, that we raised. Beef from the freezer, vegetables from the garden, fruit that we'd canned sitting in the, in the basement. And so food has this, this memory of me. What's your favorite meal? Well, it's, it's tied to things that I grew up with, that I'm familiar with and are satisfying because they remind me of home. Now, now that I'm adult and grown and off in the world, I spend a lot of my time working around the world in different places with different food cultures, places from Mongolia to India to Southern Africa. And each of these places, they, they view food a little bit differently as well. And there's different priorities and, and things that this, this is a meal or this isn't a meal. For example, my, my friends in Mongolia, they, they eat a lot of meat and dairy. So if you made them the best vegetarian curry in the world and they had as much of it as they wanted, and you ask them, have you eaten today? It's like, no, I haven't eaten today. Because I haven't had meat. I haven't had red meat, so I haven't eaten today. And similarly, if you go and you talk to my friends in, in Southern Africa, you could serve them up my favorite meal. You get a 24 ounce ribeye and some nice green beans and a big old baked potato. And you ask them, have you eaten today? No, I, I haven't had enshima, I haven't had my cornmeal porridge, I haven't eaten today. And you go and you see all these different things around the world and, and people have different perspectives on, on food. But there's one thing that ties them all together, one thing you find everywhere, and that is salt. Salt is critical to every cuisine, every person, every place for all time. And so today we're going to dive into Matthew and see what Jesus had to say about salt. Let's pray and dive into this. Lord, I thank you for your blessing and provision in the world around us. I, I thank you for the, the creativity of fruits and vegetables that we see around us and that we have the opportunity to be creative in the way that we prepare them. But most of all, I thank you for your provision. Uh, I pray that you would open up your word today and guide me as I, I speak about salt and light. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Righto. So if you are joining us for the first time, or maybe you haven't been here in a while, we've been diving into the book of Matthew, and the last couple of weeks we've gotten to chapter 5 and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So last week, Jess was telling us about the, the upside-down kingdom values that are there. And today, we're going to dive into the next little passage, uh, if you'd like to join me, in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt, light, what's, what's this about? Let me start off by, by laying down a couple of ground rules, things that we need to keep in mind as we proceed through this particular passage. First ground rule, the chief aim of man is to bring glory to God. This is not a process of you becoming better for the sake of you. As we grow, our chief aim is to bring glory to God. And we see that in, verses, in verse 16 that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to keep that in mind. Second, we are not salt and light to earn favor with God. We are salt and light because of God working through us. So, hear me very clearly. This is not something that you earn. We don't do good works to earn favor with God. We do not do good works to better ourselves we do not do good works to earn salvation. Ground rule number three, both salt and light exist primarily to be useful to other people. Salt's primary use is not to be salt or to sit off to the side and be salt. And light, the primary purpose of light is not to illuminate itself. Ground rule number three. Now, ground rule number four is keeping things in perspective. So this passage that we've just read in Matthew 5, it's not disconnected from what comes before in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not connected from what comes after. In fact, I believe it is a specific call and reaction to the, the last two verses. In Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus is saying, you know what? you're going to be reviled and persecuted, is you are to bring goodness to the world, but not everybody's gonna like you all the time, so be prepared. And this doesn't mean just set aside and, and wait for things to be better. No, we are called to go into the world and act, to make a difference. Now, ground rules covered. So, what am I supposed to be salty about? What, what is the purpose of salt? This passage here in Matthew, it just says if it's salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything else. But what, what is salt good for? Now there's a, a parallel passage in Luke 14, verses 34 to 35, that might help us get a little bit better picture of what the usefulness of salt is. Starting in 34. Salt is good, but if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Salt for the soil, what in the world does that mean? Well, oftentimes a lot of fertilizers that we have to put out on the fields are based on salts. And the Dead Sea at the time, uh, and still today, has salts that some of their forms are valuable for adding to fields as fertilizer. So one usage of salt is to bring goodness where it is lacking, to add value where it was lacking before. Second use, manure pile. What? Well, uh, in the time of Jesus and for the vast majority of history, uh, flush toilets weren't exactly a thing. 
And so you would have a latrine out back where you went and did your business. And after you'd finished, we, we all are aware that untreated uh, manure can cause problems. There's diseases that emanate from it. So a lot of the, the people in Jesus' time would have had a box of salt next to the, the, the latrine where when they were finished with their business, they could take a handful of salt and spread it over the manure. Salt acts as a disinfectant. It prevents rot and decay and disease. And flavor. The, the one we're perhaps most familiar with is in the context of food. Is, <laughs> we, we know when there's a lack, uh, is if you don't have salt in your food, it's incredibly bland. So, salt adds goodness where it is lacking. It prevents disease and rot and decay. It's used for preserving meat. And it brings flavor. It adds to the value of what it comes into contact with. Great. We know what salt is. Light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what, what is the, the nature of light? So again, in the time of Jesus, there's not lights like we have here that you'd flip on a switch to whatever brightness or dimness you want. The primary source of added light was through small oil lamps. You would have a, a small dish filled with oil and a little wick that came out of that dish. And you would light the wick and it would provide a bit of light. Well, these are pretty small, and so by themselves, they don't provide a lot of light. But when you gather enough of these little dishes, these little lamps, they provide light clearly. That light illuminates the room, and there's even a bit of warmth that comes with it as well. Illumination and warmth. Light takes away the chill. And those same little lamps, they are simple and steady. I don't know about you guys, but I think we could probably use a little more simplicity and steadiness in our lives and culture today. Now, kind of figured out what salt does and what light does. And in the same way that when Jesus is talking about this passage, it's not disconnected from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount or disconnected from the rest of the teachings of Jesus. These events are not disconnected from history. It's not like a concert that you went to back in the day and that you just reminisce about the rest of your life. Is It's not a singular event. This is tied into the entirety of God's plan for humanity. And because in Matthew we're talking to a primarily Jewish audience, is they're going to be thinking uh, back to the, the genealogy of Jesus. And primarily two different, thank you Toby, dudes, uh, Abraham and David. So we're going to pull back big picture, do a little bit of storytelling here as to how God is providing in us salt and light for the whole world as part of his plan for people throughout history. So starting off with Abraham, who at this time is a guy named Abram, and he's in his father's land doing stuff where he's at, mostly a herding culture and you're wandering around. And in this time where, where Abraham lived is you have all these different people groups and all of their different associated gods and idols and everything that comes along with that. 
But these, these gods, you're never quite sure what they want, and they're usually pretty angry. So you have to sacrifice grain, you have to sacrifice oil. For some of these gods, you have to sacrifice your children to try and appease them, because you never know. And then this God of Abraham, our God steps in and says, you know what, in the midst of this chaos and confusion, I am going to provide clarity. I'm going to provide for you. And in Genesis 12, one through three, it talks about a covenant with Abraham, an unconditional covenant that says, Abraham, get up and go. Go to a land that I will show you and I will provide for you there. Do you see that contrast from, from confusion and chaos and uncertainty to a known God who has a plan for you, for Abraham and for all of us through Abraham? And so Abraham goes and follows what the Lord has done and things work out for a little while and then human nature kicks in and things fall apart and don't go terribly well. And then there's about 2,000 years of things not going very well. And then we end up with, with a new guy on the scene, David. And in the same way that God made a covenant with Abraham, God shows up and makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. So David has been out vanquishing his enemies, uh, thanks to the provision of the Lord. And so he comes home, because everybody's been taken care of for a while, and he's like, you know what? I got a plan. God's been providing for me, so I need to do a good thing for God. He's been living in a tent for a long time, and that's not really cool, so I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a really nice house for God. And God steps in and says, hang, hang on a minute. I, I see your heart here but that's, that's not where we're going. You know what we're gonna do? Is your son, your offspring, they, they can build me a house. But you know what? I'm going to do something else for you. I'm going to establish a kingdom through you that is going to last forever. So through Abraham, we have a land and inheritance. And now with David, we have a kingdom that is promised that's never going to end. And so things are great for a little bit, and then human nature kicks back in, and we proceed to humans not being terribly great, and then we have another chunk of time where everything has fallen apart, the, this hope, this promised kingdom seems like all is lost. And then Jesus shows up, and all of these promises to Abraham and David are fulfilled in Jesus. And in the same way that there was a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with David, we get a different covenant in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So through the blood of Jesus, we have forgiveness. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have hope and we have life. We, you and I as Gentiles, are now grafted into God's plan of hope and redemption for the whole world. A lot of stuff. So where, where, where have we gotten so far? So God created the world and it was a good thing and then we buggered it up and then we get Jesus, because God hasn't left us to question. He hasn't abandoned us. 
Jesus provides the, the medicine, the healing that defeats sin and death, brings life, brings hope, and brings joy. Jesus is the source of salt that cures the rot in our world and in our life, and he is the light that illuminates the darkness. And God has created you and me to participate in this healing and restoration of a broken world. It's my job, it's your job. So, so now what? What do I do with that? Like we said earlier, salt is, is of no use. When it's packaged up, you can have number one premium pink Himalayan salt on the shelf, grade A, this is the best sort of thing. But until that salt gets taken off of the shelf, it is useless. It is only when that salt is taken down off of the shelf and used that it comes to life. Permit me another food analogy. So in Zambia, I started making my own bacon. And I used this process that's called a equilibrium dry cure. Sounds fancy, it's not. Basically, you weigh out the meat, and then you weigh out 2% of that, meat, that meat's weight in salt, 1% sugar, and then whatever spices that you are going to use. You then take that spice mixture and you rub it into the meat on all of the surfaces, and then you put it in a container and you put it in the refrigerator. After a couple of days, you take it out and you rub that salt back in. You turn it over and you make sure that that salt is in action. And you put it back in the refrigerator and you take it out and you do this for about two weeks until the salt has worked through every fiber of that meat and dispersed and in the process has transformed the whole thing. 2% transforms the whole. So that is the call for you today, is get off of the shelf, quit sitting around, putting on a, a nice little sticker that says, I do this, I do that, or I am this, is get into action. But, but where? Ah, there's plenty of opportunity, my friends. In the church, in your families, in the community around us, there are many ways that we can actively be salt and light. There's prison ministries, food pantry. Perhaps you are more of the introverted disposition and don't want to talk to people. There are ways to serve in the church by coming and cleaning and preparing the space for another Sunday. Perhaps you don't have the physical ability to go and work and carry heavy loads, but you can talk to people and share with them and encourage them with the hope that you have in Jesus and through the experiences that you have lived through. There are children in the community that are sleeping on the floor. You have tools. Start making beds. Now, again, I want to make this very clear, is sometimes we, we tend to put the, the cart before the horse and get things a little bit confused. So as we are being salt and light, it needs to start in the home. It must start with family. Because if you're trying to be salt to the community, but not to your family, is they will become, and our weird usage of salt, salty. They will become bitter towards you because dad's doing these good things for those people, but he doesn't care about us. That is not right. Start in the family. Be salt and light in your family. And as you are salt and light in your family, move into the community. Start doing things 
in the immediate community around you. And as you are working in the community, as you are seeing needs there, then we begin to work into the world at large. Some of us stay and some of us go. But either way, there is an interaction with the world. There is contact that happens repeatedly for transformation to happen. In the same way, you can have the, the best flashlight in the world, but if you leave it in a closet, never turn it on, it is of no use. It is not living out, it is not being used for the purpose for which it was created. Go to the closet, take out the flashlight, and start using it. Preferably not to shine it in people's eyes, because we do have giftings that used improperly can be more harmful than good. So be diligent in the use of your giftings. Now, this can, can seem pretty, pretty overwhelming. It's like, I, I have to do these things, and I don't, I don't know about this, and where, where do I start? I'm just, I'm just unsure. How, ah, this is rough. But let me encourage you that you are not alone in this. We are not created to be individual grains of salt that are thrown here and there that have no impact. Is it's together we work. Together we impact our communities. We go to this world with a gift of salt and light as we live daily by dying to ourselves. We have a good and noble purpose to bring glory to God through participating in the inbreaking of his kingdom, of his values. Let me leave you with this as a reminder. 2%, 2% of salt is enough to transform the whole. The same is for you, my friends. And in the same way, a little light can chase the darkness from an entire room. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you choose to use us over the rocks and that you have decided to, to use us to bring you glory, to reduce the suffering of the world, to bring hope, to bring light, to bring life. Thank you for who you are, all that you have done, and for what you have called us into. It's in your name we pray. Amen.